Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. Hello, Susan Cal. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I am so happy that we're here recording episode two of uh, uh, the Story Shaped podcast, which is fantastic. And I want to begin by thanking everybody who has uh, who has got in touch with us since Elidor's episode was was uh, published last week. Um, we just had such a great reaction. We've had people who've uh, told us how much the episode meant to them, um, how much they enjoyed listening to us talking about uh, the book Elidor, um, and people who've sort of, I suppose, revisited it because it, they hadn't read it since they were kids themselves, or people who were new to the book completely and who decided they were going to buy it and read it and enjoy it after listening to us talk about it. And that really is all that we could have hoped for uh, in starting this podcast. It was to bring the magic of stories to everybody who listens and uh, that really is our aim we have achieved it but we're going to continue anyway <laughs> we're going to talk about a new book this week um a beautiful book that is dear to susan's heart and uh, we're going to have fun talking about that um but another thing i wanted to shout out before we start um is we have a bookshop in ireland uh, that is kind of a partner bookshop to the podcast and it's called halfway up the stairs bookshop um and it is in wicklow and it is our, um, it is, is Trish and her team there are on hand to supply you with whatever books you might want to purchase. If you re- if you hear about a book on the podcast that you enjoy the sound of, um, they will have them in stock because we keep them up to date on what books we're discussing. Um, so it's in the show notes, the, the website address for, for Trish's shop. And also we have a storefront on bookshop.org. Again, the link for that is in the show notes. Um, if you want to put purchase any books and you're in the UK um, they might be a good option for you uh, to, to have a look at um, but this week because also Susan, sorry. also bookshop.org support independent bookshops so if you buy from bookshop.org some money goes to independent bookshops absolutely so that yes. is always worthwhile and, you, and uh, my favorite part about the website is you go in and you can see on the top of it you can see the amount of money that's been raised to support independent bookshops and it's a great feeling it makes you feel good when you're going in to buy your books <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's always good but uh, maybe Susan wants to talk or introduce the book that we're going to talk about this week um, because it is one of her soul books. So over to you, Dr. Cal. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. O'Hart. <laughs> um, absolutely. Yeah. So the book we're going to talk about um, today is Diana Wynne-Jones's Charmed Life. Now, Diana Wynne-Jones, I have read so many of her books. I love Diana Wynne-Jones so much. And I know, Sinead, you're also a fan. I do. But absolutely. Charmed Life. <laughs> Charmed Life was the one I came to first so that like it has a special place in my heart because it was the first one I encountered and I have like I have a very clear memory of the moment I picked it off the library bookshelf I don't have a clear memory of actually reading it because this is one of the my comfort books this is a book I go back to per- periodically uh, so I, I, I don't know how many times I've reread it so I don't remember the first time I've read it but I remember being in the 
library in Clannacilty uh, in the children's section and taking this book off the shelf. And it was the first, I'm going to read you the first two lines because that's what got me. Cat Chant admired his elder sister, Gwendolyn. She was a witch. <laughs> and as soon as I heard the, as soon as I read the word witch, I was like, I, I'm in, this is, yep. this is a book for me. It's great. It's a great beginning. I gotta say. Yeah. <laughs> and it must've been about 11, I think, cause we moved to Clonacilty around when I was about 11 and I have such good memories of, I think my mum would take us to the, the library every week to choose books. And I, I have such a clear picture of that particular children's bookshelf and just like running my finger along the spines. And <laughs> I think it was the title as well, Charmed Life, Charmed that, Life. that yeah. also spoke to me. Amazing. Do you have, um, you, do you have any memories of reading this for the first time or when did you come across? Do you ask something, it's really, it's really funny because when, when we decided we were going to do this particular Diana Wynne Jones book, I, I went to my shelf and pulled it off and I have an old edition of it as well. I, I don't know when it was published, um, 1977 or something like that. And I know I've had it for years, years, but I have actually no recollection of reading it for the first time. I don't know when I read it for the first time. Um, it's a funny because, as you say, I, I love Diana Wynne Jones as well, but it's funny, this, is, this Charmed Life is as far as I'm aware, in publication order anyway, it's the first Crestomancy book. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, so it it's the, fir yeah. the first time we meet the, the kind of the Crestomancy or the, the family that uh, that have that title. And um, it, I never warmed to the Crestomancy books as much as I warmed to her other books. And I know that's probably breaking your heart because you love this it book. It is! Um, <laughs> but there's so many other, I, I absolutely adore, for instance, um, House Moving Castle and mm. the sequels to that. Um, I love Tale of Time City. I absolutely adore my favourite Diana Wynne Jones book, which is weird for me because it kind of strays into YA territory, which I'm not normally an expert in. But uh, I love Fire and Hemlock because my, my absolute oh, favourite Diana Wynne Jones book. Which I, think is, we've, I think we should do an episode on Fire and Hemlock. I think we probably should, yes. But we could be here for about four hours discussing it because it's such a complicated <laughs> novel. Um, but this one, I have no recollection of reading it for the first time. I know I did because when I came to reread it for this podcast episode, I as, as soon as I heard the name Gwendolyn Chant, I was like, oh, yeah, she's evil. I knew like I knew <laughs> I knew she was. She is. She's so brilliantly evil. And I absolutely love her. She's amazing. Um, but I have I just I don't know when I read it first. And it's funny because like with last week when I, I could pinpoint the day nearly that I read Elidor for the first time. So normally my memories of books are quite specific and I and I remember really clearly when I read them first. But I guess I've read so many Diana Wynne Joneses that I can't remember when I read this one first, but I do think it's like all her books. Um, it's it's fantastic and such such a craftily, cunningly, cleverly plotted little book. <sighs> she's isn't just it? she's just a genius at plot. I don't know how she does it. I no, am I so <laughs> envious because yeah, well, like one of the things that struck me on this reread is um, this particular reread because I've read it so many times, but. All of the information, all of the all of the clues are there if you know what to look for. And of course, mm -hmm. you do, on your first read, you don't know what to look for. Um, and then everything, it's like this beautiful, intricate puzzle, which everything starts to click into place for the reader. Um, you're a little bit ahead of pass, I think, in figuring out the puzzle. But there's a lot of the puzzle that you're figuring out at the same time as Cat, which gives you such yeah. a sense. Yeah, and I, Actually, I love we should probably to give a yeah. short synopsis and tell people who yes. people are exactly. I'm just realizing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe maybe you'll do that. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so for the people who haven't read Charmed Life, and you should, and you probably should before you listen to the podcast any further, because there will be spoilers. Um, so Charmed Life, um, yeah, as Sinead said, it's the first uh, published book in the Crestomancy series, but it's not the first chronological book, because Crestomancy, rather than a name, is a title, and it's a title for someone who controls the magic across various different worlds so charmed life is set in an a world it's kind of like it's like a, an edwardian version of our world but magic is an everyday ordinary part of the world so you have like we meet the main characters cat chant and gwendolyn chant who are living on coven street and coven street is full of like witches for hire and a willing warlock and it's just a very like I mean it's like it's part of the capitalist system um <laughs> magic <laughs> um, magic for hire I love it yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's again I think this is like we, we spoke about this um last week when we were talking about Elador but this is my particular weakness I think magic that is ordinary magic that is practical magic that's tangible so you're here in a world in which people make magic in very um concrete ways so one of the characters makes magic by tying a knot in a handkerchief I'm, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting away from my plot summary um, so <laughs> so Kat and Gwendolyn are brother and sister Gwendolyn's older and at the very beginning of the book their parents have just died and I don't, we can maybe discuss this later, Sinead, but I think Gwendolyn might have had a, a hand in that particular Possibly. accident. Possibly, yes, yes. Um, so their be, parents would be, died. Would be in character for that girl. <laughs> in character. <laughs> the parents have died and they're living with um, a neighbour of theirs, Mrs Sharp, who's a wonderful character. Um, and Gwendolyn is a very accomplished witch and Cass cannot seem to do magic at all. Um, and Gwendolyn has big ambitions. She wants to be an extremely important person. In fact, she just she she wants power. She wants, she wants, she wants to, to be queen witch, doesn't she? she wants queen, to be queen, queen witch. witch. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, and so they when they are looking through their pair what what their parents have left behind to look for basically anything that will um, that will provide capital for Gwendolyn to to learn to learn magic they find the signatures of someone called crestomancy and signatures and names in this book have particular power so mrs sharp their now guardian is like oh we can use these signatures and um Miss, mr nostrum is will will teach you magic he'll be very interested in these signatures um but what happens one day is that um this clairvoyant on the street kind of forces cast she, she insists on reading his fortune he wants none of it but she she pers- she, she kind of holds on to him and a different voice comes out of her um a man's voice saying um ah there you are um in the meantime Gwendolyn writes to Crestomancy um, he's an extremely important person um in the hope that he will adopt them and tutor her in magic and Sure enough, this comes to pass and they are whisked away to Crestomancy Castle, which is this huge Gothic pile in the countryside. 
Um, Gwendolyn is delighted. She thinks like this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm getting my fortune at last. Cass <laughs> is unsure. He's missing Mrs. Sharp and he's missing familiarity. Um, so they end up in this castle uh, with Crestamancy, his wife, Millie, um, their two children, Julia and Roger, and a host of other um, characters. But things don't go according to Gwendolyn's plan. She doesn't feel comfortable in the castle. Crestamancy won't allow her to do magic unless the tutor, Michael Saunders, is there. Uh, so she starts devising all of these various, like, extremely... Um, annoying and brilliantly um vicious <laughs> magical tortures for the whole family <laughs> just yes. to try and get like she's trying to get a rise out of Crest to get Crestamancy's attention isn't it more yeah. 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 yeah and he is and what again I think mean? we'll come and talk <laughs> we'll talk about this later but Crestamancy is like the like he doesn't react at all he's so to... unfazed by the whole thing isn't he so yeah. unfazed uh, which is uh, like I love that about his character um she is clearly plotting something with Mr Nostrum and um a character in the village called Mr Balsam um and one morning Cat wakes up and discovers that Gwendolyn is gone and in her place is a girl called Janet who looks exactly like Gwendolyn, or well, looks almost exactly like Gwendolyn, but is obviously from a completely different world. Um, and I think we'll talk more about Janet because she's a wonderful character. Janet is from our world and she's ended up here in this magical world magical. trying to yeah. figure everything out. And she helps Cat along in his, his slow, <laughs> slow realisations that Gwendolyn... Mightn't be as nice as she seems to be. Yeah, yeah. Because he looks, isn't it funny the way Kat is just so devoted to Gwendolyn almost right to the very end and doesn't seem to see the truth about her until it's like hitting him in the face almost. Uh, Yeah, and you as a reader. So funny. Yeah, Yeah. you as the reader can see it. Like quite early on, I think. You're like, as you say, from from page two or something. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty obvious. Um, (laughs) But Kat can't can't see it at all. So it takes a lot before Kat, we'll, Back that. That. It takes a lot yeah. before Cass sees Gwendolyn for who she is. Um, and the novel ends in um, this climactic battle. Um, and I think we, maybe we'll save talking about that for, for a bit later. Um, what would you like to, where would you like to start with this novel? Well, in my preparation for today, I came across this great quote. Well, it's not a really quote. It's more of a paraphrase from the author, Neil Gaiman, who I also love and adore. Um, and I'm, I should have noted where he actually spoke, where he said this, possibly in Diana Jones's obituary, which unfortunately is, you know, came about because Diana Jones sadly passed away in 20, 2011. Um, and Neil Gaiman would have been a friend and a colleague and a, a person who was a great supporter of her and her books. Um, and he said, Diana Jones makes you work as a reader. You know, her books are are difficult. Um, I don't know whether difficult is the word I would necessarily choose, but certainly they're complex. I mean, they do they do reward effort. Um, so maybe what what to think about that? I think certainly it, in the other books of hers that I've read and really enjoyed, in, with particular focus on Fire and Hemlock, um, which I still I mean I've read multiple times and still don't think I think I get a different meaning from the ending of that book every time I yeah, read it. I don't. 
it's incredible text. The end. <laughs> no, <laughs> like it sort of shifts. Like it's, it's almost like a new. It's almost like it's almost like it writes itself anew when when you come to it for you know a second or third or fourth time. It's it's an incredible achievement. But you know, Diana Wynne Jones's books, they do. I think they reward detail read they reward concentration they reward you know yeah as you say there's clues there from the very beginning if you know where to look even to me like the 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 most amazing clue in this book is cat's actual name <laughs> you know the fact yeah, that he's called yeah. cat all the way along and then you realize as as the book comes to its denouement or its ending why he's called cat because his real name is eric um and we we realize there isn't a reason why he's called cat um but do you do you think neil gaiman's on the on the money there with his quote you know do do are her books difficult do they they make you work as a reader they do make you work as a reader but I think they work make you work as a reader in a really enjoyable way um and I found this really great quote from from Diana Wynne-Jones there's a a wonderful book of essays a book of her essays called Reflections um and um in one of the essays in there she she's talking about like she she talks about when she came to write an adult novel um and she every time she kept saying oh this is too difficult for adults I'm going to need to explain this to them and she said she never had that feeling when she was writing for children um and I'm going to quote from the essay she says children are used to making an effort to understand in addition nearly everyone between the ages of nine and 15 is amazingly good at solving puzzles and following complicated plots this being the happy result of many hours spent at computer games and watching television and I think that idea that children are used to making an effort to understand is is such an insightful one because when you think about it like the world the children are new to this world and they have to like puzzle it out all the time so asking them to puzzle out a plot isn't too much of a stretch whereas we as adults are used to understanding exactly yeah yeah I I think that's something we've lost nearly in, in modern children not lost as such but I think especially with with Alan Garner as well I mean um his his plots take a bit of thinking as well and and again Charmed Life is such a small it's a slim volume again but it contains so much um because as as we've said Janowin Jones makes the reader work and she makes the reader sort of uh engage their brain <laughs> when they're reading I think sometimes in in modern books and in mine including my own in this you know we're sort of expected or asked I suppose to sort of explain things a lot more clearly you know you're not you're not you don't have the same I suppose, space to to leave things slightly under explained, you know, and let the reader put that together themselves. Um, maybe it's just a, a different style of writing. And sometimes when you come back to these older fantasy classics, you kind of go, oh, my goodness, like this is like changing gear in your brain when you're reading mm. it. You have to think of it in a different way. But definitely, I think Diana Wynne Jones's books and, and, and Garner's as well and anyone from that kind of era, I suppose, even though the books might be slightly more complex than we might be used to they're always worth the effort you know and they're always worth the deep the sort of close reading or the the attentive reading and, and rereading because sometimes they, they need to be reread as well um yeah and I think this book particularly rewards a reread because when you get to the end and you know that I think we'll give a few spoilers here when you know that Cass <laughs> has nine lives and that's the reason why he's called Cass and you know that Gwendolyn has been and, and, they, and in this in in Diana Wynne Jones's universe, people with nine lives are extremely powerful enchanters and they're very rare and they're the ones who become the Crestomancy. Um so Cat is an extraordinarily powerful enchanter, but he doesn't know it because Gwendolyn has been using his magic. Mm-hmm. Um and she's also used his magic so much that she's kind of she's killed him a few times. Used up his few of his lives, hasn't he? Yeah. 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 Uh, which is so sinister. 
um incredibly sinister yeah um, isn't isn't it five lives he's gone through and then yeah he, he's got, he loses yeah. the sixth as the book continues isn't it isn't that it I see, yeah, like, yeah he's only got yeah. three left yeah the end yeah um and one of them is really like one of the lives that he uses, one of the lives that Gwendolyn loses for him is in such a callous way. Like, I mean, they're all callous. They're all callous. This one, <laughs> they're all, yeah. but this one particularly is so, because she's, he's playing the violin and she's annoyed by him playing the violin. So she turns the violin into a cat and that uses up one of his lives. And I'm just like, oh my, like, I, for some reason that's almost worse than like <laughs> drowning him or giving him crabs. It's just like, because there's it's, no purpose for it. It's just she's annoyed. She's by the annoyed music. by the noise of the, of the violin. Yeah. 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 Um, but I was going to say something else there about um, about the kind of the difficulty or the complexity of, of the books um, and the fact that the that, that the book asks a lot of the reader. I think maybe that makes it stick harder or shape us oh, yeah. more because we're having to put so much of ourselves into the understanding and the experience of of the book it sort of and ingrains then, it more deeply into your into your psyche yeah yeah, absolutely. yeah because yeah. you are like you're merging <laughs> with the book. absolutely it's a really good way of putting it yeah um, and then I think another point I want to make about the complexity is I think she gets away with the complexity because she is so funny like the oh, yeah. humor in her books allows any kind of difficulty to just kind of slip in there or you're you're more willing to take on the complexity because she is like every line like she is hilarious has a singer in it somewhere yeah yeah it's such an enjoyable read I mean you're you're having so much fun that you don't even realize that you're working hard <laughs> to put the plot together maybe it's yeah genuinely yeah. she's she's hilariously funny yeah I agree and I mean like especially in, in characters like Crestomancy himself you know who while being this very powerful figure and you know we all know he's the enchanter you know the the powerful powerful man that he is the the magic warden I guess you know he's really sometimes he's really funny the way she describes him but he goes on the flouncing around in his silk robes and he has this you know fancy dressing gowns and his his exquisite taste of clothes and all this and I just think he it's really funny. the best wardrobe the best ever absolutely. of any character I think I've ever encountered <laughs> in children's or non-children's books he is the most well-dressed and yes, it's such well, an intricate part of his character absolutely it's it's, it's absolutely part, part of his character intrinsic part of him true yeah and he reminds me in that sense he reminds me of um of of howl in house moving castle the wizard wizard howl is, is very similar in in that sense like he's very you know he like somebody said he, he he looks like david bowie or something you know he has this kind of loose sort of lounge lizard rock star <laughs> sort of uh, vibe and and i really i really think that's true so maybe genuine jones had a thing about describing her male characters as a uh, Peacocks. <laughs> exactly. That's a really good way. <laughs> um, but certainly I love the way she describes Crestomancy. Um, he's brilliant. And as you were saying, the the way he's so blasé about Gwendolyn's attempts to get his attention by, you know, turning all the windows of the house black every hour or whatever it is or bringing all the trees up to the house. That, that was so funny when she brings all the trees <laughs> up to the house and they're like, you know, crouching or they're crowded around the walls and, and you can't get in or out and you can't see in or out because the trees are there and he's like oh whatever just wait for them to go back you know they'll go back eventually <laughs> and they do it's it's oh it's gas that he just and was, I love rise I to lo anything no and I love the bit where they're in church and Gwendolyn makes all of the stained glass windows move move and, oh that's um, brilliant yeah it's so funny and I like towards the end when like um Chris Matthews is explaining everything to Kat and 
is, is it towards the end? At some point towards the end, Crestomancy admits that he also found Gwendolyn, some of Gwendolyn's, I think it's Cat is trying to, yeah, this is this is where it's happening. Cat is trying to avoid taking magic lessons from Crestomancy because he's afraid that Crestomancy will realise that he doesn't have any magic. He says, I know you shouldn't teach me magic because I'm, I'm evil. I mean, I loved some of Gwendolyn's um, tricks. And Chris Mancy agrees. He's like, yeah, some of them were brilliant. I really enjoyed some of those tricks too. Um, he's just a fantastic character. And I, I, I love his vagueness and his like, nothing. The, the bewilderment that he on his face whenever someone summons him, you know, he has like, this is part of the thing when he say his name, he, he sort of appears. And, uh, you know, he, he occasionally he'd be in the middle of, you know, tucking his handkerchief into his pocket or putting his prayer book away or whatever. And he looks around with this, you know, bewilderment, like, where am I now? You know, I just think that's so well observed. Um, and, and really, I always used to get a, a kick or a grin out of, of imagining him just suddenly being pulled from whatever he was doing <laughs> to a random place by somebody who used used the magic of his name. Um, you know, it's, it's really good, really well observed little details in the book. Yeah. And it, like again, on the, on the humor, like there's little more. This is like the humor and the tangible, the, the kind of everydayness of the magic is Mrs. Sharp's gingerbread men. Oh, yeah. Because in this world, <laughs> when gingerbread men are made, they're like great fun because they run away um, and you have to catch them. And so it's like often a, a big chase. And when you catch them, you feel like vindicated and justified in eating them. But Mrs. Sharp's, because she's not a very good witch, her gingerbread men just kind of flap around limply and um Pat feels really bad he doesn't want to eat them and at one point he notices that Crestomancy won't eat the gingerbread men either and it's a, it's a nice little kind of connection um, yeah connection between them Okay, um, I guess seeing as how we're we're talking about Diana Wynne Jones's brilliant characterization, I think it's probably time to talk about um, one of the the most vivid characters in here, which is uh, Gwendolyn. Um, Gwendolyn is she's just the most brilliantly evil, <laughs> and unrepentantly evil, evil character. character. She's amazing, isn't she? Ever. Like, I can't think of anybody else. I can't. Well, maybe my reading is not wide enough yet, but I can't think of any other character that is evil at the start, is absolutely unapologetic about their evil and doesn't make any, doesn't have any interest in redeeming themselves, doesn't even try to change and doesn't have a resolution, like doesn't, not a resolution, but doesn't have um, a redemption at the end. Like she just literally starts evil. She goes about her business evil and she ends evil with a bang. <laughs> I know. You have to, you have to admire that. <laughs> And there's a moment right at the end, and I think the reader is with Cass here because, like, it's it's in the end, and it's in the kind of it's in the climactic battle scene between um, these witches who were rebelling against Crestomancy's power and Crestomancy and his family. It turns out Cass slowly kind of realizes this, or and the reader slowly realizes this, in order for the witches' rebellion plot to work, an innocent has to be sacrificed, and that innocent is Cass. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kat for a moment and uh, me as a reader again this time was like 
oh, it's okay because he's got nine lives. So Gwendolyn knows that he's got nine lives. So he'll sacrifice one life, but it'll just mean one of his lives is lost and it's okay. Yeah. So she, she still has, she still cares about her brother. Yeah. But no, because no. Gwendolyn <laughs> shouts, oh, by the way, he's got nine lives. You'll have to kill him several times. And it's that moment that Cass finally realizes. realizes yeah. I was like the rug being put out from under me too, because I thought, I literally thought, yeah. this is the loophole. You know, she's yeah. been plotting for this the whole way through the book, but she knows he has more than nine, more than one life. So she knows if they kill him, he'll die, but he'll come back. But then when yeah. she said, no, no, you have to remember to kill him a few times because he's he's got more than one life. I'm like, oh, my God, how evil this is this? Actually, but how brilliantly done. Yeah, it's actually quite level. satisfying. It's amazing. You're like, yeah. You know, of course, just... of course, she's like that. And I think if it, if, if, it had gone the way we were expecting it to, it would be a lesser book for that and she would be a lesser character for that. Absolutely would. Yeah, yeah. That would have been what was expected. But Diana and jones just completely undercuts anything that you might expect and just goes down a totally a totally unique and, and you know, independent road of her own. And I just, I so I admire the book so much for that. I admire her as an author so much for that. I admire that she had the, I suppose, the 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 talent to create a character like Gwendolyn and to do her full justice in the plot that the book that of the book that she's in it's just she just she just does not disappoint <laughs> on any level and, uh, and the fact that she's so kind of angelic looking like she's beautiful and she's got this blonde hair and she's immaculately dressed mm-hmm. and um but she is got a soul full of evil <laughs> <laughs> dark on the inside and isn't it funny the way when Janet gets pulled into their world she kind of comments on Gwendolyn's clothes and how, how constricting and and mm. uncomfortable they are I suppose it's because it's, it might be like a, a slightly different you know as you said it was like an Edwardian setting in the world that Kat and, and Gwendolyn live in so maybe she's coming from a different sort of maybe it's a, mo- a more modern world like our own but I just think that I thought that was really funny too that Gwendolyn has everything perfect like petticoats and all the all the rest of it so she looks like a china doll or she looks like a perfect little as and as somebody does describe her as being like a china doll in the book, doesn't yeah. isn't it? When she's think, um she's being nasty to uh, to Julia, um being quite rude to Julia, extremely rude actually about about Julia's yeah. appearance. And Julia goes, "Well, I I'm happy to look like me. It must be really annoying <laughs> to look like I have to look like a china doll all the time, like you, you know." Exactly. And I, I I love that comeback. I think that Julia is great. I give a little cheer for Julia <laughs> when she when she had that rejoinder. Isn't did you read the Mallory Tower? Tara's books when you were young isn't there yes. an awful character called Gwendolyn Gwendolyn Mary Lucy books? yes yeah yes um, yes Gwendolyn seems to be a name people pick when they want to write a really horrible person <laughs> yeah. and I wonder is like is that a conscious reusing of that name on Diana Wynne Jones's part I don't know because it's I think it's spelled differently I think the Gwendolyn in Mallory Tara's isn't spelled the same as Gwendolyn in this uh, book so it's maybe possibly again it could be a story-shaped situation where we have Diana Ben Jones's mind being formed by the books of her early life as well. I don't know, um, but certainly I, I I did laugh at that because Gwendolyn. I but I you know in a way they're different though because I think the Gwendolyn in Mallory Towers you nearly feel sorry for because yeah. you, you get this you get this sense that she's kind of um unhappy. Pathetic. She's very pathetic yeah. and wimpy and unhappy, and she takes out her unhappiness as sort of savage bullying on other people and nastiness mm-hmm. and sarcasm and whatever. But Gwendolyn is just purely, this is me. I love myself. Yeah. I am fantastic in every way. <laughs> and you just you just have to I'm just black jawed with admiration, really, that uh, that Gwendolyn can be so so of her so in her power, like well, not isn't it's not even her own power, the power that she has misappropriated from her brother. 
Um, but you know, she seems to she seems to just embody uh she she just embodies a person who who deserves that kind of power, you know. Um so I just think she's amazing. She's such a great just such a great creation. Um and I I could only wish for the talent to write something as incredible as Gwendolyn Chant. She's, yeah, she's such a she's such a brilliant villain and I think she's also like the her villainy is enhanced by the appearance of Janet as well. So um, I guess we might have to talk about the other worlds in order to talk about who Janet is. Yeah. Janet is Janet is from our world, and Janet is a kind of double of Gwendolyn's. Um, but she's the anti-Gwendolyn in so many other ways too. Yeah. Like she's she's not magical. I don't think she's not magical. She's not magical. Am I right? She's in not saying magical. That? Yeah. yeah and she's, she's also world, quite yeah. nice. Like she's a good sister. She gives Cat as as time goes on. She gives Cat the sense that this is what sister should feel like. This is what it should feel like mm-hmm. to have a sibling who actually cares for you um uh you know so she in some ways she she looks like Wendell on the outside but she's not like Wendell on the inside and I think she's nice she's a nice character too yeah but yeah. she has some traits that overlap with Gwendolyn like she's got this kind of imperiousness um, true yeah and there's moments where Kat is like oh she suddenly she suddenly she's, looks like Gwendolyn or she's, she's channeling like Gwendolyn, Gwendolyn has, here yeah. yeah yeah but she's got no malice like she is yeah as you say she's like an anti-Gwendolyn and there's such poignant moments like when Janet and Kat are working together and Janet is asking Kat to do something and she says to him like like oh I know you're so small but it like it makes me feel awful when I see you cowering like that like what has Mm -hmm. she done to you Um, and that Kat only does things if if Janet orders him to do things and you just get that 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 real sense of how awful Gwendolyn has been to to him and how how gaslighting he is is, is yeah it, is it exactly yeah. like she has that led is... him to believe he is one thing all his life and she's led him to yes. believe he's lesser that he's underneath her that she's she's superior to him in every way in without without stopping his love for her like I mean it's like she's used his affection for her against him or something it's the most incredibly yeah. she's such a psychologically complex character you know she considering, is. Yeah. considering she is a child you know um but like the, the depth of evil and the depth of uh, ability to manipulate Kat and maybe other people as well and that's probably why she's so frustrated when she goes to Crestomancy Castle and she realizes yeah. all these <laughs> all these things she's relied on all her life the manipulation just don't work with Crestomancy he just does not wow. have any time for it and she, and she just her her attempts to get his attention get you know they escalate because she's getting more and more annoyed you know at her own her own lack of ability to do to, to make him do what she wants you know so yeah but yeah and cat poor old cat but uh, i love i, I love the way he, i love the way he changes and develops in the book from as you say like this child who like, i suppose on the surface you, you know we're, we're reading about him and he seems like a fairly happy young guy he's, he's okay like other than he's lost his parents and he's living with his sister but he doesn't seem to understand or realize what Gwendolyn is doing to him so he just loves his sister he's trying to look he loves his Mrs Sharp and he's trying to get on with things and he's trying to make the best of all the situations that he's in and then but when as you say when Janet comes into the situation we really see the depth of oppression that Kat's been under and then we watch mm. him we watch him turn into the cat at the end of the book which is totally different maybe you want to talk about that yeah because I find this I think especially on this re- reread I found Kat really interesting in terms of like he almost seemed to me on this reread that he is kind of a willing participant 
in his own oppression or he's like refuses to look at the truth and i think that's kind of highlighted as well when in in the gap between what the reader understands and what cat understands because you're a little bit ahead of cat like you under you understand that gwendolyn is awful and that gwendolyn is using him you don't fully understand that she's using his magic yes mm-hmm. but you know that she's she's using him and manipulating him but he doesn't see any of it and he doesn't see how nice Roger and Julia are he's just fully under Gwendolyn's spell yeah isn't it sad when they go to the castle and Roger wants to play with them like yeah. he wants to bring him out to, to do games and he's he just clings to Gwendolyn and he won't be separated from her and you're kind of going yeah. oh, please Kat please have some fun with a boy of your own age who wants to be your friend, you know, and who who wants to be kind, you know, it's it's really as a mother, I suppose, as a parent, nearly, <laughs> you'd feel like, oh, the poor little thing, you know. But I suppose it's like it's a survival strategy that he's like he deliberately doesn't question anything because yeah. his only life raft. Well, he literally clings to Gwendolyn at start, yeah. and that's and she yeah. well, he literally saves his life, or or so he thinks, from yeah. drowning in the boat accident that killed their parents, you know, because he, at the start, we're led to believe that Gwendolyn is because she's a witch she can't drown so therefore she floats so therefore Kat clings to her and they both survive the, the boat accident but that's another thing that she does so well um, Diana Wynne Jones like within the first sort of two pages or three maybe of the book so much has happened you know it's literally yeah. we've we've introduced these two characters they've lost their parents they've gone to live with Mrs Sharp we've learned that magic is a thing in the world that it's just part of everyday life and we've learned that Kat and Gwendolyn cling together because of he, he sees her as being his salvation and that's literally within a couple of hundred words of the book. It's just mm. condensed so so well, and you just get such a, an in depth, I suppose, immersion in the in the in the world of this of this book. It's incredibly well done. I really admire the style and the skill that went into that. Yeah, I I, I love the slow reveal of of Kat's power and yeah. Kat's potential. Yeah. Um, and again, rereading it, knowing that he's an enchanter, that he's got nine lives, that he has this kind of incredible gift, that he has this incredible power. I love the moment when like Gwendolyn's gone, so she's not using his magic anymore. And his magic is coming to him without him realizing that he's doing anything. And um, he and Janet are walking in the gardens and it's l- late summer, early autumn. And he's looking at a tree and he's like, oh, I wish there was conkers there to play yeah. with. It's too early for the conkers. And then in the next second, there are these beautiful, beautiful conkers. perfect conkers. And that's like, <laughs> I think that's his first, his first use of his magic, I think, yeah. is conkers. To wish, the and wish fulfillment of conkers. Yeah. Of, and it's like it's such a childlike thing to use your magic. For, like it's, for, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a really nice little scene. I remember that one too. Um, um, but I also think it's really interesting Kat's relationship to his power. Um, and nobody else is quite sure of how much he's aware that Gwendolyn is using his power and if he's letting her use his power or he's complicit in her use of his power. Like Krista Manstey and all of the, the other um, adults in, in the castle, just they can't quite figure out what the relationship between him and Gwendolyn and him and his power is. Mm-hmm. And I think the novel, like for me, the novel is is about power and a power on a variety Lots of, of levels. levels. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. yeah. yeah. And with Kat, it's like it's 
about your relationship to your own power. Um, and Kat's journey is about taking ownership over, recognizing your own power and taking ownership and responsibility. And I think it's that idea of responsibility mm. as well, because Kat abdicates responsibility throughout the book. He just, yeah, he gets, he's kind of like, his mind is almost going towards what Gwendolyn is doing and then it kind of swerves away. And he just is like, oh, I'll just let Gwendolyn. And would you say do Gwendolyn does in another sense? I mean, Gwendolyn wants all the power, but none of the responsibility in some ways. Yeah. Like she she wants to grab as much as she can of the, the magic that's available in any given area, but she doesn't care about what happens to anybody else. Like she she yeah. just wants to, she wants to be the one that has all the power um, and doesn't care and about in, any fallback fallout. And even in the world that she goes to, where she is queen and Crestomancy says to her when she comes back for that battle he says you know they're not actually doing what you are telling them to do and she's kind of like oh, I, I don't, don't care, care. it I'm feels queen. like I have, power. Like I have yeah. power exactly yeah and that's, that's all she cares about she just wants to be she wants she to, just wants to feel the appearance or yeah, yeah yeah that's that's really interesting I remember him telling her that and I remember does does Crestomancy say something along the lines of we've you know we gave we gave Kat so many opportunities to yeah to tell us what was happening and he and he stayed silent you know yeah so it's like they were kind of waiting for Kat to to put two and two together maybe or to sort of and he never kind of quite got there until Janet made it clear by her her presence I guess Uh, yeah and her asking questions yeah because you need that you need someone kind of from another world or perspective that's different to yours Yeah. yeah Cat needs someone from another, literally from another world to make him see what's happening to him. In his own world. <laughs> and make in him his see own his own complicity in it. Because there's that brilliant moment, like in that climactic battle, where um, Crestomancy and his family are fighting against the Witch's Rebellion. And it seems to be going, the, the Witch's Rebellion seems to be in control. And Cat suddenly realizes, I think the dragon, this little dragon that helps him see that. Gwendolyn is using his power so the witch's rebellion are defeating Crestomancy even though he thinks he's fighting on behalf of Crestomancy he's he's actually um, being used by Gwendolyn to fight on the half, behalf of the witch's rebellion and he's like no hang on take his this is mine you can't I'm have taking it. my power back yeah like, <laughs> yeah yeah th- that really clear moment of taking your power back which is brilliant. It's, it's a re- it's a real cheer moment for Kat, isn't it? It's a real yeah. as a reader, you feel like going, yes, Kat, finally yes. You've, <laughs> you've you've stepped up, uh, you know, and, and it's all going to change now, and it, and it does, and it's great, yeah. But um, but I just like speaking about the other worlds that Janowin Jones creates. You know, I, I just think it's such a clever. She's such a clever. Uh, I suppose I don't know what the word is like. The, I I imagine like like a string of beads almost. You know, when when somebody pulls themselves from the world that they're in they pull somebody else into the world like like to replace or to kind of fill the vacuum that they leave behind or whatever like almost like a like a string of pearls you know pulling one pearl along at a time and um, that's exactly what happens with Janet isn't it when Gwendolyn yeah hops off into a different world she pulls she pulls her Janet double, into the yeah. world her double to to or one of her doubles to to kind of replace her and everybody else in the chain of doubles all through the worlds they all kind of hop over one space isn't it yeah and uh, <laughs> I, I just think that's so funny and such a such a fantastic and I, I guess unique I've never seen that done that particular uh, idea done before because I know there's lots of books that that feature other worlds um you know but never quite as intriguingly I think or as intricate as as Diana and Jones description what is the word it's not practical but it's like she has this very logical 
mind that's logical and like concrete or tangible like one of those words I'm I'm looking for um that yeah if you move someone from one world and doubles exist throughout the other worlds of course you obviously there has to be there's a vacuum created it has to be filled with somebody yeah yeah that's it's a really clever you know because I mean I've written a book with similar like a a multi-world or multiverse kind of thing but uh it doesn't work quite the same way but you know I was thinking about talk do you want to describe how Diana Wynne Jones's other worlds work Uh, I don't need to do that well I I mean I've, I've you go on, go on, you do it. <laughs> yeah, so again, this is a brilliant, brilliantly clear and practical way of thinking about parallel worlds. So in the Crestomancy novels, um, another world is created when a, a, a big historical event happens, happens and yeah. the results can go in two or more ways, um, like a war, say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the result that doesn't happen happens somewhere else. Yeah. It creates another world. It splits off and creates another world in which so there's a moment in um in the book where uh they're having a history lesson and um the tutor is asking Janet who won the Battle of Waterloo. Who do you think won the Battle of Waterloo? And she's like, Oh, we did. And he's like, What are you talking about? Of course the French did. Um <laughs> yeah. so so yeah, so another world is created then in which the French won the Battle of Waterloo and everything that um, might transpire from that result. So you have worlds in which magic exists, like this one, um, worlds in which goddesses have human counterparts. That's from the lives of yeah, there's, there's another book, The Lives of Christopher Chant, which is Crestomancy's childhood actually I love that I think I might even love that one more than Charmed Life but Charmed Life is a special place in my heart because it was the first one I read right but that what's interesting as well is that in the lives of Christopher Chan so it's about this Crestomancy um whose name is Christopher Chant it's about him becoming Crestomancy him coming into his power and there's a similar journey for him as well that he is oblivious to his power and he ends up complicit in smuggling from other worlds um and he oh, ends up complicit right. in the kind of the destruction of mermaids right um, and again he's like his mind is almost he's got these parcels of these with this very fishy smell and his mind is like almost understanding what he's doing but then almost deliberately not looking at what he's doing so i think Diana Wynne jones has an interest in that is an interest in responsibility sure power and like being very clear-eyed in the role and the impact that you have in life sure like if you you have power or if you have status or if you have success or whatever it can often mean that somebody else somewhere else has suffered for that you know I think she does that well in this book too doesn't she like the whole idea that the dragon blood being like an illicit magical substance or whatever and you get the impression that someone somewhere has committed terrible crimes to mm. to get this um magical uh, artifact that that's for sale you know for, for huge money uh in in the world that we're reading about um i definitely think that that's an interest that john Owen jones has you know that the idea that 
you know, yeah, with as they say in the films, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> but it's true, and she she does explore that very well. Um, yeah. I, haven't the, I haven't read the one, the Mailers with Christopher Chant. I must give that. Oh, a go. it's that really, great. it's yeah. really good. Yeah, um, they're quite similar characters, I think. Christopher Chant and Cat is the Christopher of this book, and Cat. Yeah. And you can all, you can see that there's an affinity between them. They understand each other um, yeah. in this book as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's treading similar ground to this book. But it's I think I loved it as well because knowing this book and loving Crestomancy so much, it was really it's really wonderful to see his childhood, see where he came from. Yeah, it's actually on the topic of kind of I suppose the, the power imbalance or the the. The reliance on other worlds for the things that that, are, that appear in, in the world we're reading about. There's a great quote from um, Aishwara Subram, Subramanian. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing the name. Um, uh, in an article she wrote for uh, uh, an academic conference that was held about Diana Wynne Jones's life and work back in 2019, um, and she says the primary world appears to rely on the secondary worlds for various resources. The exotic supplies sold by Mr. Baslam in Charmed Life and the adjective exotic is particularly appropriate here. Unscrupulous magic users from the primary world not only smuggled these resources from the secondary worlds, but commit atrocities to get them. Um, and she connects also, it's a really good article because it connects the Crestmancy Castle being like a stately home. And it creates, yeah. uh, or sorry, connects the idea of, of um, you know, colonialism in literature more generally and in this book. You know, the idea that people who live in stately homes or have these amazing great estates in in England or in, in the home country or whatever, that they are not there purely because the people are really clever or they work really hard or whatever, that they're there because somebody else somewhere else in the world is being exploited. Um, yeah. And she also makes the point that Crestomancy's house doesn't actually belong to him or his family because, as we said, Crestomancy is a role or a title and which in another book in the series, The Pinhoeg, we learned the house belongs to the government. So as well as as well as the fact that, you know, the, the house belongs, Crestomancy and his family are the ones that are taking part in this sort of exploitation but also it's a it's a wider it's a structural systemic thing as mm. well the government are doing it too and Christomancy is only a tool in that systemic oppression of of other worlds and other and other peoples um you know it's it's a it's a pretty and she goes on to say it's a pretty comprehensive portrayal of power and who wields it um mm. you know and i think that i thought that article was was excellent i'll put a link to that if i can i don't know if it's available online but i'll certainly put the the name of the article and the name of the critic um in the show notes for anyone who wants to look her up um but it's it's, yeah, because, it's amazing to think of such a big theme being dealt with so comprehensively in a, in a kid's book isn't it sorry i know yeah, yeah because the yeah the witches rebellion they stage themselves or the kind of the the justification for rebellion that they are that they tell cast is that crescentmancy controls all the power he controls all the access to other worlds and that's not fair and so they want to take him down so that it becomes more democratic um, but actually what they want to do is they want access to other worlds so that they can um, kind of plunder the other worlds for yeah. exotic supplies yeah so yeah it's a, it's a really complicated look at power and colonialism and there's a critique of colonial exploitation running in the novel and similarly in the lives of Christopher Chant. But then that's, that critique is also undercut because Crestomancy himself and his family 
are part are of the, part of the, the whole system. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's like something was uh, something I noticed, you know, the fact that there's so much made of of um, the scene when the, the baby dragon sort of or the dragon in this, in Michael Saunders' workshop tells Kat, you know, that my my mom, my mother was killed by an yeah. a blood hunter. And, you know, uh, and they, they, they keep dragon blood in in their house, you know. So in a way, how do we know whose perspective to trust if everyone makes mm. use of this extremely powerful and magical ingredient, which is occasionally it, it can be so illicitly gained, you know. There is also the idea that the older dragons sell their blood willingly, so it's like fair trade or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it doesn't involve exploitation, but so much of it in, in the past, I suppose, particularly was taken by force. You know, so if if you know Crestomancy, we can't hold Crestomancy and his family up as um, stalwarts of, of of equality when they themselves are are part of this system. You know, so it's it's a really mm-hmm. really clever. There's no resolution possible for it. No, you know, and, and, and it's clever. They're clearly aristocratic or upper middle class, and Cat is related to Crestomancy. So even though the title is not hereditary, mm. in what we understand from from the worlds is that it's going from like one fa- a, 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 it's going to another family member, yeah, of a similar some class. sort of, some sort of a cousin of the Chant family, isn't it? Kind yeah. of a, yeah, might be, might be father to son. Role. It's nearly always, yeah, isn't it? It's not missed. Yeah. It might be father to son or grandfather to grandson or whatever, but it is some kind of transfer from one chant to another and they're usually either men, yeah. Um, actually, I just wanted to say something kind of related, but kind of going back to, well, I suppose it's that, it's the the castle, the, the stately home that reminds me of this, um, that in that book of essays, Reflections, Diana Wynne-Jones mentions that, um, she wanted that she she envisaged charmed life as a kind of anti-gothic romance. Oh yeah. Um, so that's and that the girl in the gothic romance is actually the villain here. Um instead of instead of the instead of the heroine that's waiting to be freed or <laughs> rescued or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. That's really clever. Um, okay, I came across this brilliant anecdote in that book of essays, Reflections. Um, this is from an interview with Diana Wynne Jones, and she's talking about the process of being edited and how much she hates being edited. Um, so I'm going to read this out because I think her words are the best. Brilliant. And she's talking about her experience of being edited for Charmed Life. She says, I knew by the time I'd done the second draft, it was absolutely perfect. It really, really was. I mean, just as it is at this moment, you know. And this woman rang me up and wrote to me and told me exactly this sort of thing. You must take out this chunk and that chunk and rewrite this and alter that. And I was furious. And I thought, surely we can do something about this. And thank God it was the days before computers. I said, send me the TypeScript back and I'll see what I can do. So she did. And I cut out the bits she told me to alter in irregular jagged shapes and stuck them back in exactly the same place with sellotape, only crooked, so it looked as if I'd taken pieces out and put new pieces in. And then I sent it back to her, and she rang up and said, oh, your alterations have made such a difference. And I thought, right, hereafter I will take no notice of anybody who tries to edit my books. And I don't. I make a frightful fuss if anybody tries to now. 
And I just <laughs> love that anecdote so much for loads of different reasons. Brilliant. Um, oh my God. I think I think the woman she was just screams out of that anecdote, doesn't it? it just it just gives across yeah. the the fun and the the absolute yeah. just oh the attitude of I'm just I I love it. It's amazing. She I would I wish I I wish I'd met her. Um, you know I I, know. It's, I, I really I really uh, her and Terry Pratchett. I I'm sorry I never got to meet either of them in person before they passed away. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. God, that's so funny. And there's a touch of Gwendolyn there, like a nice part of Gwendolyn. That's yes. just this idea. The that, confidence, like, I guess. I maybe. knew it was. It was the just confidence. Yes. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think uh, I've ever that, had like, that idea of like after your. <laughs> Your second, second draft, draft, your second draft. My, like, books are, my books are still mostly gibberish after that second draft. So I'm amazed that, she could, that she could get such a... How, yeah, I don't know how many drafts I... Like I've lost, I lost count of the amount of drafts I went through. But certainly I did not think of the second draft. This is perfect. <laughs> uh, but actually that... that um, talking about work and process and um, makes me think of like the influence and given that both of us read her and read a lot of her work as mm. children like what influence she might have had on because you have written a book that has other worlds in it like, have, were you yeah. influenced by Diana Wynne Jones isn't it funny because not consciously but I guess I, I must have been I mean like every story that you read in my in my opinion anyway uh every story that you read shapes you you know that's one of the reasons why we started this podcast to talk about the books that shaped us the most but I definitely think that everything you read sort of goes into your your create your cauldron I call it in the back of your mind the, the you know the creativity cauldron that sort of churns out your ideas when it's time for them to, to come out and um I was struck by a few things when I read Charmed Life or a couple of things about Diana Wynne Jones's treatment of other worlds because I have a my my second book was called The Star Spun Web and it also kind of has this other worlds structure um and similarly to her to the way you were talking about the the branching off of uh, you know when things happen in history it causes a, like a, a branch in 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 reality or whatever there's a scene at the beginning of Stars and Web that's and a much better where... way of putting it <laughs> well maybe so but there's a like a, a, a woman what the character called Miss Ackerby she uh she gets a letter from an from a a scientist who is supposed to be really he's supposed to be um Erwin Schrodinger the great physicist who happened to be living in Dublin in 1941 when the book is set and I didn't you know didn't consciously do that either it was a, it was kind of a happy accident um but he writes to her about how that's that's uh, one of the theories about other worlds is that when whenever a momentous decision is made or when any kind of decision is made you know there's a branch in reality where decision a goes this way decision b goes the other way or whatever it might be and I just I think that's such a fascinating uh, way to think about other other realities other worlds the idea that there's infinite other worlds and somebody out there is living a different life completely to the one I'm living here um yet yet while you know being me in every other sense is just fascinating um and Diana Wynne Jones seems to have a thing in her books where she talks about other worlds where the houses people live in the houses people or the characters live in are kind of like um connection points maybe between the worlds or they're kind of they're built yeah. on fault lines in reality or they're built on places where uh, worlds intersect or overlap or something and I, I forget the book now it's leaving my mind but there's a book where um there's a building that's built on one of these kind of fault lines in reality and it's there's such there's such an amount of magical power flowing through it that the, the house itself is kind of unstable and it's kind of you know collapsing because the mm. power that's on it is so so great and I, it got me thinking about my own book because in my own book we have a family called the D'Souza's and the, the power to travel between worlds is kind of in the family um, even if they don't realise it like there's many of them living on different different planes or different realities that 
have the potential to travel between worlds, but they don't know it, so they don't ever do it. Um, <clears throat> but it's it's within the family more so than than within a particular place. But the, the places where the family calls home, so the the house that they live in, um, and also the character of Tess in my book uh, lives in a in a version of Dublin called Hurdleford, and she lives in a in a in a home for for children found foundlings lost in foundlings. And so the place, and that's where she's always lived. So she doesn't live in the ancestral home, but her her home, the place she calls home, these are like they're not like transfer points, but they're like they're like stability points between the worlds, like like contact points, mm-hmm. like like maybe like like a pin being driven through sheets of paper, perhaps like it, it connects the worlds that way. But I was amazed at the idea that myself and Diana Wynne Jones could have the same, not the same idea, but like an idea that's similar in so many ways that a house, a house or a building. On a pivotal yeah. on a pivotal spot could be important in the connection of different re- levels of reality, um. You know, so that was that was cool too. I was kind of like, whoa, <laughs> I wonder is this book or what <laughs> was was this idea somewhere in the back of my head? And I didn't consciously uh, channel it, but it obviously I think it did have an influence. And certainly I think her um, I like to think her 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 humor, uh, you know, and her her fantastic yeah characterization. I loved I yeah. loved to think of that as being somewhere in me, uh, you know, and that I'm able to use or draw upon what I've learned from her you know when I'm when I'm creating my own my own stories um I not, not, not that I'm fit to tie her shoelaces absolutely have <laughs> well thank you no 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 because <laughs> I think you you definitely have um you have Dino and Jones's humor and her ability to create these memorable and unique and really funny characters and I read <laughs> I, I think I saw a review of yours somewhere um that described you as the love child of Philip Pullman and Diana Wynne-Jones was <laughs> perfect if you haven't read Sinead's work oh my god and you like Philip Pullman and you like Diana Wynne-Jones go out and buy all her books right now especially oh, the Starship on web um for that other worlds if you can see me I'm um, blushing <laughs> <laughs> I wonder which who I look like more. I don't know. I, I think I'd I'd like to look like Diana Jones. She's kind of who I want to be when I grow up. You know, she's amazing. Um, but I'm sure she influenced you too. I mean, you you she you've read so much of her uh, at a young age as well. So any any yeah, any, a- any DWJ in your forthcoming debut novel? Um, well, she's absolutely in my cauldron of um, what did you call us? The cauldron, cauldron of creativity. Cauldron yeah. of she's in, definitely in my cauldron of creativity. I don't know. I haven't. I think there's other worlds in my book but I think they're coming from a slightly different place um but I do know and maybe someone will have to read it and and see it for me because I'm not sure if I can see it myself but I do know that there's a grandmother in my book called Ursula and she is definitely influenced by Crestomancy she has quite a few nice dressing gowns (laughs) I love I I think I did that quite (laughs) consciously as a little like brilliant well as a person that has no sense of style myself personally uh I really admire characters that can you know do fantastic things with silk and brocade and all these wonderful materials I, I just admire Cressomancy and his flair so much so she, I look forward to meeting like, her she cares about she cares about clothes a lot Diana Wynne Jones because Michael Saunders the tutor in this his there's also brilliant descriptions of the way his cloak billows true actually yeah and and Miss Bessemer purple dresses and everyone she seems like a, a very, very well turned out person way. absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah. The clothes are important and like we said earlier in the episode the uh the importance of Gwendolyn's clothes as well seem like the way that they're described yeah. you know by Janet as well it's 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 really really important um but I think I would like to bring our episode to a sort of a 
close with a great quote that I, I came across when I was uh, looking up this, uh, doing some research for this episode. Um, and again, it's from um, those, the academic conference that was held in 2019 in Bristol about Diana Wynne Jones's life and work. There was a, a keynote speech given by the author Robin Stevens, who, if you haven't read her work, actually, you should really do that too, because it's not, it's not in terms of uh, what we're talking about here today, it's not quite the same, but she she has been influenced by Diana Wynne Jones hugely. Um, her, Robin Stevens's work is um, fantastic. She has a series called The Murder Most Unladylike Books, and she has a new series beginning, I think, later in the year. Um, and they're like mur murder mysteries for for middle grade. And I have read them all. They're fantastic. Uh, she's incredibly talented. Um, but she gave the keynote speech um, at this conference. And she's in her in Robin Stevens's words. I, I couldn't agree with this more. She said, Diana Wynne-Jones showed me the truth that there's no literature higher and more important than children's fiction. Nothing reaches into its readers and changes them like a children's book. To become a fan of something or someone is to reshape not only the way you see the world, but the way you imagine yourself. It quietly changes your life. And I mean, that is exactly what Story Shape is about. It's exactly because I completely agree with that. Um, like we said last week as well, but every, every single book that we that you read, especially when you're at the pivotal age, you know, that's why children's books are so important and why I, as a mm. children's author, feel so privileged to to have um, the voice that, you know, have, have, the, have the, have the potential to reach children, you know, when it, when a child re reads my words, I hope that they, they take something from them. I hope that it helps the child to, to discover something about themselves or to, to, as we, as we learned about Kat today, to, to lean into their own power, to, to discover their yeah. own potential, um, even just to give them ask a bit questions. of happiness for a few hours. Yeah. Ask questions and to, and to ask complicated questions. You know, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I just think we are handled, we are handed a mantle of, such responsibility and such such privilege, I think, from previous authors for kids, you know, and then they they hand that on to us by the power of their stories that have shaped us and that we go on then to shape stories that will continue, hopefully continue this wonderful chain of handing down what's important, you know, from from one generation to the next. But I thought that that quote from Robin Stevens was a great place to leave, you know, yeah, quietly, it's, it's, it quietly changes your life, uh, you know, so it quietly changes your life and um, it changes your life in really profound ways because I'm like, Diana and Jones doesn't shy away from darkness. A cat gets killed several times in this novel. He's being manipulated by mm. his sister. He's um, yeah. caught up in these very intricate webs of power and has to negotiate his his way. His way, and he has to find. He, ha he has to. He has to come to his power and have all these realizations of of I can. I can. I'm not helpless this. here, you know, in, yeah, in yeah. you know, I love the part at the, you know, at the end of, of Diana Wynne-Jones' uh, Charmed Life, when when the plot begins to sort of click into place, you know, there is, mm. there is a, there's a point, uh, I did mark it, but I can't find it now, but a place when, when they're beginning to come into the garden and everything is clicking together and you're beginning to finally realise, oh my goodness, like, you know, uh, the, the cat, um, Fiddle, the cat that is one of Cat's nine lives, he's in the garden. And when we see Cat stroking Fiddle, we go, oh, okay, why would he be here? There's a reason why the cat's in the garden. Um, and, we, and then it becomes really significant later on. Um, and these things begin to drop into place and you realise, um, you know, uh, how how brilliantly plotted this book is and how all these, all these threads that seem to have no way of coming together are suddenly about to just come together in the most incredibly skilled way. Um, and yeah, and I, I just love that Cat's, development as a character and his stepping into his own potential and his own power is such an important part of that and it wouldn't it wouldn't be resolved without cats finally admitting that yes uh i have been mistreated 
yes, I have power and yes, I'm going to own it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what, yeah. like, what a better message for a children's book is own your power. Yes. And remember your responsibilities, I think. is important remember your well. responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. And your magic. <laughs> <laughs> and you're brilliant and you've absolutely no limits <laughs> to your potential. I mean, the, these are all yeah. fantastic messages, you know. And uh, yeah, it's a privilege and it's a pleasure to be a small part of that uh, that world. And, you know, yeah. So Diana yeah. might be gone. We salute in, we, you. We salute you. <laughs> you're amazing. And your book. You're your books, your, yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and your books live on. Your books keep speaking to us. And uh, I hope that they will speak to children for generations to come. Um, but yeah, I think, is that it? Are yeah, we done? I think Season we are episode done two? for the moment. Well, we'll be back um, with another wonderful deep dive. I think we'll be doing that for the next episode, maybe. Um, and we'll shortly be uh, able to bring our guests on board. Uh, we are still working out the logistics of uh, recording with our guests, and that will be done as soon as possible. Um, and I really hope that everybody will continue to like and share and subscribe and keep listening and that you've enjoyed this this episode of Story Shaped Podcast. Um, but until next time, it's goodbye from me, Sinead O'Hart. And it's goodbye from me, Susan Cowell. <laughs> keep reading, everybody. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Story Shaped with Susan Cowell and Sinead O'Hart. Follow us on Twitter at Story Shaped Pod. And don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts.